Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Today, we have a very special guest as she comes with years of experience working with the Latinx community in various settings. Dr. Julie Volpe is an adult psychiatrist, and we're lucky to have her here today. So we're going to ask her some questions about her experience and what kind of things she can tell us about working with the Latinx community. So thank you, Dr. Volpe, for being here with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your background professionally? Sure. So I I went to medical school at the University of Vermont, and then I did my adult psychiatry residency training program at the Harvard Mass General Hospital training program. So I was living for four years in Boston. And then after that, I moved to Connecticut and I've been working in community health, community mental health and community health settings for the past 15 years in Hartford. Okay. And how did you first get into this field? What kind of led you there? Well, actually, I went to medical school with no interest in mental health whatsoever. Uh, I was interested in doing primary care and and more along those lines. But in our third year of medical school, we have to rotate through all kind of major disciplines, Mm -hmm. surgery, OB, pediatrics. And my last rotation was psychiatry. And I was very uninterested in it. (laughs) I was (laughs) the state hospital because my name was the end of the alphabet. And I tried to trade and kind of get out of that, but I couldn't. (laughs) So I went and spent two months working at the state hospital. And that's actually what really got me interested in mental health. Um, I found Mm -hmm. the illnesses both really compelling and really difficult and challenging, but there was something just very, um, very interesting uh, and and compelling, like I said, about the lives mm-hmm. of the people that were suffering from mental health issues that got me very interested in working in the field. So, oh, wow. Interesting. So you kind of ended up here by chance? Yeah, I would say or, so. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't part of my plan. I was not destined to go into mental health from, from many, many years. It was really a last minute decision um, in medical wow. school. Okay. I, I had no idea that you had to do each different, like each of the major rotations. Yeah. Third year of medical school is really, you spend two months doing kind of each major area, um, adult internal medicine, pediatrics, surgery, OB, and it kind of gives people a chance because a lot of people come into medical school with an idea of what they might be interested in, but, but a lot of times you haven't actually had practical hands-on experience in what the field is like. Okay. So they want people to get a little more exposure and mm-hmm. that's really what got me interested. And is that common where people go in with a certain plan and then because they're exposed to things that they didn't know before, they kind of change their mind depending on what they like in that moment or what they're drawn to? Yes, I would say at least half of people probably that go into medical school have a complete change in terms of the area mm-hmm. that they want to go into um, based on what they're exposed to and, and what the actual practical experience of caring for those types of patients and those types of mm-hmm. conditions is like. So okay. a lot of people make changes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you get into the substance use piece? I think that's, that's mostly out of necessity. I didn't, that wasn't what necessarily drew me into psychiatry and mental health, but it's really hard to not be able to address and treat that. It's so common. It's Mm -hmm. so pervasive. There's so much dual diagnosis in the field. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just presents itself everywhere. And no matter which setting you go into in mental health, you're really Mm -hmm. going to have to address mental health. Once I had decided to do psychiatry, I actually intentionally made um, some additional training opportunities during my residency focus on substance use, because I knew that was an area I didn't have Mm -hmm. a lot of experience with. And I wanted to make sure that I had good training in how to treat that. Okay. And would you say that that's something all psychiatrists do? I think it's hard to avoid it. I think maybe there'd be a few settings and maybe private practice where people can sort of tailor their practice to do 
kind of straight mental health, but I, I think it's very hard to work in any kind of community setting and say, you're yeah. not going to address and treat mental health and substance use together because yeah. again, it occurs so commonly. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty unusual to not be comfortable as a psychiatrist with addressing and treating mental health and substance abuse together. Right. And how did you get into working with the Latinx Hispanic community? I think that was, well, combined reasons. I think it was by the nature of, of coming to work in a, in an urban setting. And mm-hmm. also I do happen to speak Spanish. So that was helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I guess the, that combination of factors ended up putting me in this situation where I, I ended up working with a lot more of, of a Spanish speaking population. And that's kind of become the mm-hmm. area which I feel very comfortable with and, and a lot of exposure to that working in Hartford um, for the past. Right. Year. Okay. Yeah. And what's your cultural background? Did you always speak Spanish or is that something you learned through school? Yeah, so that's something I learned through school. I grew up uh, in New Jersey and (laughs) my family has no um, Spanish speaking background. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that was something I I always was interested, though, um, in both the language and culture. uh, Mm -hmm. And I um, was a Spanish major in college, actually. So I was a Spanish literature major and I spent uh, six months studying in Ecuador during my junior year of college. And I just love the language and really um, enjoyed the opportunity it presented to, to kind of get to know you know people from from like connect with people on a different level. I think when you when you speak yeah. with people in their primary language, it's a much easier way to connect, okay. especially when you're in mental health. I think it, it allows a lot more opportunity for for more comfort and yeah, you know, for sure. I, I don't think anybody enjoys a language line. <laughs> I've, I've never met anybody that. Loves that. Provider or client that is like, oh yeah, that's so comfortable for me to do. <laughs> so that's really great. Yeah. That you are able to communicate with the people in the community that you work with. Yes. Yeah. I love being able to do that. Um, and again, it's it's yeah, it definitely presents a lot more opportunities, but I, I I love that I can speak Spanish fluently because that allows me to connect more. And I think also just having some time studying in other countries has also allowed me more opportunity to get to know a little more of the cultural background that that some of my patients um, you know, that that shapes a little bit of how they present the the way they present with certain symptoms and certain ideas and some stereotypes that there's, you know, work to help overcome too when helping people with mental health treatment. Yeah. And how has it been when a client, a patient comes to you and they've had psychiatric services in their country? Have you found that a lot of it is different and they're kind of shocked by certain differences? Or is it, have you seen that it's mostly the same from where they're coming from and the type of treatment they were getting to when they get to see you once they arrive to the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it depends a little bit. Um, the majority of my clients come from Puerto Rico, and there, I think there seems to be a fairly similar treatment background and and treatment availability of services, but maybe maybe a little harder to access in Puerto Rico. Some people I know come specifically, at least to Hartford and the clients I work with, because there's there's a lot of availability and a little bit easier access to psychiatrists and mental health treatment. But I think. I think it varies. I, I think I think there is still a lot of times for men a lot more stigma about approaching mm-hmm. um, mental health treatment and kind of acknowledging and admitting that they might be going through depression. And I think that's somewhat cultural and maybe expressed even yeah. a little more in other countries. And maybe in the U.S. they find it a little more a little lower barrier maybe to to being able to um, acknowledge and access treatment uh, if mm-hmm. they're going through 
times, especially of depression or anxiety. And I think for yeah. men, it's harder. I think women seem to have a little bit more, uh, a little bit of an easier time, maybe mm-hmm. acknowledging. But I think sometimes also, sometimes women get a little bit dismissed as having, you know, being a little hysterical or los nervios, uh, you know, like yeah. a little bit, sometimes a little, sometimes women are not taken as seriously if they have mm-hmm. mental health issues. And so kind of everything that they go through is chalked up as, oh, that's just, yeah. She's just a crazy woman or that's just her personality or of course. Yeah. So both, both men and women have those barriers in terms of like the culture and what they're coming with. Yes, I see that. And I think people also a lot of, I will see people who've, who've, I think more traditionally coming from other countries, people are more comfortable seeing therapists or counselors. Mm -hmm. I've seen psychologists, but I've not necessarily seen a psychiatrist or been on uh, medication. So there, there seems to be like a little bit less access to being prescribed medications for treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in what, you know, when I ask people, oh, am I the first psychiatrist you've ever met with? And they say, yes, but Mm -hmm. it's because they don't want to be seen as crazy. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of cultural stigma about if you're seeing being prescribed medications, then that means that you are crazy. Okay. Um, So you've, it's like, you can go to therapy. That's fine. You can talk about your problems, but if you decide to be treated with medicine, then that's, that's too serious now. Exactly. That seems to right, raise the bar. And mm-hmm. that that's a threshold up for a lot of people they feel like is, yeah. is, a, is a bigger step or a bigger um, commitment. And have you found that a lot of people don't even know what kind of services are available once, you know, if they're coming from another country, and then they start to receive that treatment that maybe they meet with a therapist, and then they're not re- even really sure what else is there for them? Yes, I would say that's that's often the case. I think it's more typical, like I said, maybe that there's access to counselors or therapists. Mm-hmm. I think people aren't necessarily sure the difference of what a psychiatrist does that's different. So a lot of people don't even necessarily know what would be different. Or I think we do a lot more maybe group uh, treatment and group therapy. That doesn't seem to be as common. Um, and I, I know that group, I think there's so much benefit that comes from being in group therapy. But I think for a lot of people, it's the idea that you know, that there's a lot of, you know, you, you want to kind of keep your private things private and not necessarily share with other people. So I think there's a lot of concern about, you know, sharing personal or private family things, which, which yeah. I think would be fairly cultural as well. There's a, a lot of concern about sharing that or about, mm-hmm. you know, gossip or a little, you know, bochinche or yeah. whatever happens that things that you share in that group setting will get mm-hmm. shared. And there's a lot of fear about that, understandably so. Yeah. But that's one thing I see when people are coming from other countries that they have mm-hmm. more concern about participating in group therapy setting seems to be kind of a right. So, yeah. And a lot of that is cultural, right? The keep things in the family, in the home, like this stuff doesn't leave the house exactly. really private in terms of problems, negative problems. Right. If every, right. You definitely want to put on a good appearance, but there's, right. There's a lot of a lot of difficult family dynamics, a lot of like maybe abuse history, things that are definitely kept private and hidden. And that is really, it is hard for people to overcome their concern mm-hmm. about sharing something that they've been told has to stay in the family or no yeah. one has to know about. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, kids, as they grow up, kind of get that message and it may become harder. And as they, as they become teens or early adults may have a hard time sharing about some of the stuff that went on when they were young, because they feel like they're breaking some sort of family code by sharing the you know, personal um, yeah. information. Gotcha. And what sort of differences have you seen working with the Latinx and the non-Latinx individuals, both in terms of the mental health piece and the substance use or co-occurring? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, well, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think with mental health treatment, you know, like I said, sometimes there's a barrier to coming, but, but it seems like once people realize the services are there, there's a lot of investment in, in the treatment that is available and people are more willing to fully invest and they really want to to feel better and do better. There's a lot of family support too. So as much as there's a family emphasis on keeping things private and secret, family members are are often there for each other and have support um, in a way that I don't see outside of the, this same, you know, community, I think that is a cultural emphasis that family is, you know, one of the most important things. I see that as, as, um, as I have patients who get older and develop dementia, the idea of putting a, you know, an aunt or a beloved mother or mm-hmm. grandmother in a nursing home is just not even a consideration. Right. Family. Like who's going to take care of this person now? It Cousin, is- uh, you know, whoever can step in will usually step in. Exactly. Yeah. And that is, that is such a, such a benefit and such a, like a heartwarming thing that you see again, like you said, right. People will make great personal sacrifice. Some they'll they'll kind of figure out who can most easily do it. That person may have to stop their job. Other family members will kind of fund, you know, kind of help support them financially, but someone Mm -hmm. is always very much a caretaker for someone who has, you know, especially like someone who's older, that seems that there's a lot Mm -hmm. of respect and care for older um, family members. And that's something that is very, you know, distinct. And I think really um, supportive uh, family so far in terms of helping Mm -hmm. people overcome some of that. Yeah. Now, have you seen it being negative in any way in terms of somebody maybe always wanting to be too involved, like always wanting to be in the room or speaking for the client instead of letting the client speak for themselves? Yes, I have seen that too, for sure. Sometimes, yeah. So often at at the first initial appointments, you know, anyone who, if the client who I'm seeing um, wants someone else to come in with them, you know, for kind of support or just to be there to kind of help tell their initial story, I'm fine with that and whatever they prefer is fine. But I do notice sometimes there seems to be a little too much family involvement, like you're saying, Um, maybe an overprotective or overconcerned mom has a hard time letting their child who's an adult child be there and kind of speak for themselves. And so at some point I often will just suggest that it might be best if I meet with the client individually and then maybe five minutes at the end, if there's family concerns, they can share. But sometimes you have to be, I think, right, deliberate about sort of drawing that line and making a distinction because otherwise it ends up being a little too enmeshed. And, and, and sometimes, right, the family support crosses the line to too much where it's a level of dependence or where it's actually that person doesn't feel like they're actually able to tell the truth about what's going on because they don't want to offend, you know, mom or okay. dad or sibling or someone who's often in the room or a sub- yeah. sub- them. So I, I try to, you know, balance both helping families stay connected and involved and supportive mm-hmm. in a way that seems helpful and appropriate, but sometimes do have to kind of set the limits on. Yeah. Set those boundaries early on before it spirals. <laughs> and I see sometimes when you back to kind of the idea of substance abuse treatment, sometimes I see, I see often kind of women who maybe middle-aged women who often are sometimes a little, I'm not sure in mesh is the right word, but they, but they often are sort of a little bit colluding with their maybe adult kids who have substance use issues. They're letting them stay at the house for free. There's no consequence to their drug use. They don't have to, they don't have to pay any rent. They don't have kind of any contribution to the house. And it almost gives the the adult, their adult children permission to keep using because the idea of, you know, when I suggest maybe setting a limit and saying either the, the substance use has to stop or they need to start paying rent, oftentimes the mom is shocked with the idea that, that the limit setting would then mean they would have to actually put their adult child out of the house. So there's, there's a little dependence and interdependence, I think that can also develop. That's also maybe one of the downsides of a lot of family connection is I think it's harder for adult 
um, or parents of adult children to sometimes set some limits when they're um, going down a, a path that's really harmful to the family. And then yeah. they will keep sacrificing and essentially be in a sense, almost funding or giving permission for their substance use, even if they don't want them to keep using by yeah. letting them stay there for free and for, by letting them not have to, you know, avoid having any consequences of their substance use, they, they mm-hmm. almost endorse it and allow it to continue. So that can be one of the downsides mm-hmm. that I often see in helping yeah women like be willing and able to kind of set a firm limit with um, Mm -hmm. an adult child who probably needs to suffer a few consequences of their substance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's both a blessing and a curse at times. Yes. Yeah. It can work both ways. Yeah. And how have you seen where you've been working the Latinx population being disproportionately impacted in terms of their mental health or just overall health needs? Well, I think I think in a lot of ways, a lot of a lot of the Latinx community. I mean, I think they stuff suffer from a disproportionate amount of mental health. Sometimes mm-hmm. um, it may be, you know, a lot of them may have grown up in um, difficult family situations. Maybe some, um, again, maybe parents had mental health that wasn't acknowledged, addressed, or treated. Uh, I think a lot of times people have grown up in very difficult situations, and then and then if there's abuse that is not allowed to be talked about or addressed, then that kind of prepares perpetuates a, you know, a generational kind of situation with not only do they, you pass on mental health issues genetically, but sometimes the, the environment that, that people have grown up in, I think leads to really a little bit more of a disproportionate amount of mental mm-hmm. health within the Latinx community. And I think, again, I think the youngest generation, maybe kids and teenagers and early twenties, maybe mm-hmm. are more open to getting treatment and addressing mental health, just a little more head on, but maybe their parents or mm-hmm. grandparents who might have raised them and suffered from their own untreated mental health issues, not only, again, pass, pass some of that on genetically, but also the situation yeah. and environment creates a, a, a tough, a tough, uh, you know, environment for people to grow up in when they're young. Yeah, yeah. And what about in terms of the pandemic? How did you see that impact the Latinx community? Yeah, so I, I think, again, I think, um, it probably also disproportionately created situations where there may be people who are of more fragile um, medical health. Um, mm-hmm. So people were a little more fearful about exposure to COVID. So I think it, it created um, also a disproportionate amount of Latinx community that was mm-hmm. really isolated and yeah. more significantly isolated for a much longer period of time. Mm-hmm. I think it was tricky with kids and not being able to go to school and having mm-hmm. kids having to stay home. A lot of people who maybe had more, you know, jobs that were a little bit l- less forgiving or, you know, mm-hmm. like not, not flexible about coming in in person. Mm-hmm. A lot of people lost their jobs, gave up their jobs, which caused significant mm-hmm. financial instability. So, and that just adds to stress. If there's financial mm-hmm. strain at home, that adds to the stress in the house. And right have been managing with, you know, their mental health balance, all you need to do is add financial stress to that. And that really Mm -hmm. accelerates the problems. So I think think more isolation, more financial stress from, from jobs and loss of jobs, uh, having to take care of kids where they should have been in school, but they weren't. Yeah. And I mean, when they don't have their basic needs met, it's, it's hard to even have the capacity to want to deal with their mental health or do certain things that are going to be good for them. But if they're worried about how am I going to pay the rent this month, it's hard to be like, oh, let me do yoga or let me do this meditation that that I talked about with my therapist or whatever. Right. And no Prozac that I can prescribe or any other pill is going to really help alleviate that level of stress that people have. Like, 
If you're not yeah. sure literally how you're going to pay the rent that month, you're worried about getting kicked out of an apartment or mm-hmm. having enough food to make it through the month. Um, those are not things that can be treated easily with medications. So you've got mental health crisis yeah. kind of piled on that isn't easily addressed unless mm-hmm. the basic needs are met. Right. And what was the telehealth like with the Latinx community? Was that any different than the non-Latinx clients? Yeah, I would say so. I think, I think, especially because I, if I think of kind of like I have a large uh, percent of my population is kind of like more middle-aged women who, who maybe within the Latinx community have like a more difficult time with technology. Maybe they don't have um, the latest smartphone or if they have a smartphone, they don't tend to necessarily know how to use it and use the app. So we had a lot of difficulty for people that I would prefer to connect with at least over video. If they weren't able to come in person, we had to keep, you know, oftentimes ending up doing phone calls because either sometimes they had phones that they could access on. A lot of times they didn't have computers, but a smartphone would be available, but most of them had not necessarily accessed or downloaded, um, you know, apps or be able to log on, you know, go through the whole process. A lot of times there was connectivity issues and things like that, that made it really challenging. And I feel like audio phone calls, you know, you can get by, but it doesn't really help you as much um, Mm -hmm. connect with people. So that was definitely a challenge. So we would offer telehealth, but a lot of times I think disproportionately it had to, within this community had to kind of um, default to be phone um, visit, mm-hmm. which doesn't really provide, I think, the same level. Yeah. Of yeah. And is that still being offered telehealth right now? Yes, we definitely still offer telehealth. We're trying to get people to come back more in person, especially since mm-hmm. the schools are in person. Most things have kind of um, improved to the point that people feel more yeah. comfortable going out. Although some people still don't really, but um, we're definitely encouraging people to come in person, but we still yeah. offer the option of phone, which we're really trying to stay away from video. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I had to figure out, I have a couple different ways I can do video. So I have um, one that's easier to use than zoom. So for people who really mm-hmm. have a tricky time, I just send a text and all they have to do is open the button and it just, you know, it, it clicks right into it. So I tried to find ways around navigating and keeping yeah. it really simple, but yeah, uh, but sometimes even it's hard. also difficult because there's certain apps that we can't use. Like the Latinx communities uses WhatsApp a lot. They yes. really, they know how to use that. They'll that figure is- it out. But can we really use that? Probably not because it's not secure. Exactly. So it's like we have to stick to certain apps or programs that were, you know, it's not going to be unsafe to use or information is going to be leaked somehow or any of those things. Yeah. So it's right. It's a little it's right. You have to kind of limit it to the the apps that are secure. And, and those are a little bit trickier to use oftentimes. Yeah. I found Doximity is the one that where I, I can just send a text directly through and mm-hmm. all they have to do is, is, is click a button on the text. So there's not the same downloading with Zoom. Most people are comfortable with Zoom now, but for a while that presented a lot of challenges. And some of my older mm-hmm. uh, population doesn't really still uh, have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Do you use any different modalities or any anything different that you use like as a provider when treating the Latinx community? I think I tend to, I think I probably tend to, like, like I was saying earlier, I have to do more work to kind of help people feel comfortable with some of the modalities that we do use that I think are really helpful. I think group therapy, especially, especially if it's kind of separated, you know, male and female, I think female therapy groups can be really helpful and effective. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, so that's something I really encourage. I think once people realize it's a safe community where there isn't going to be, you know, a lot of 
you know, gossip and it's really meant to be helpful and supportive. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of power in being able to realize you have shared experiences with other people. Um, So that I think is actually really helpful, but also requires the most effort on my part to convince people to try. (laughs) Um, And so that's one that I think, you know, I've seen just a lot of, you know, I think it helps as people realize that other people understand and they're not the only ones that are going through this kind of experience. I think that kind of connectedness is very powerful and it tends to help improve self-esteem. And when you see people kind of supporting each other, it it kind of takes emphasis off of what they might be dealing with and and helps them develop a a perspective that's a little different. So I just think so much like healing and help and improve self-esteem comes out of those groups. But like I said, that's, that's one that I think is probably the most helpful, but probably the like underutilized within (laughs) the least popular one. Exactly. People prefer, no, no, I just want to see you. I just want to come in here and talk about all my issues. Again, I think sometimes just the idea, just talking through issues, there's some benefit to that, but sometimes it just comes to the point where it's not actually really therapeutically helping them. Whereas I think when you're in a group, there's always kind of a focus, a topic, and you're, you're sharing your experience in a way that can be helpful directly to other people. So I try to steer um, people towards seeing the benefits of, of the therapy settings. Yeah. What about with medicated assisted treatment? How has that been any different with the Latinx community? I don't think so in terms of difference. I think there's maybe oftentimes like a little extra education required. People in general, I think are more familiar with something like methadone, or I would say the Latinx, I think community has a little bit, maybe more stigma about starting on those type of medications, mm-hmm. uh, methadone, which I don't prescribe because that's only in methadone clinics, but Suboxone and some of the other mm-hmm. medications that are available. I think it, the Latinx community I see tends to be kind of have the idea of, I don't want to be on anything else that's addictive. So it kind of, you, mm-hmm. if, if it's addictive, it's addictive, it's all out. So a lot They're of like, t- they see it as a substitution rather than a treatment. Exactly. Exactly. And how do you sort of like educate them on that? What what kind of things do you say to make them see it in a different light than how they're seeing it currently? Right. So I'll, I guess I tend to talk about, or we look at how long they've been using and if it's a substance like, like heroin or fentanyl, just kind of looking at what's, what type of success they've actually had with staying clean without any kind of additional support. And I always talk about it in terms of support and remind people that there's different paths because I think sometimes, you know, paths to sobriety, people feel yeah. like the only way to stay sober is kind of the extreme view of it. Like you use nothing. Um, do it completely mm-hmm. on your own. You got to be tough. And that's a little bit, again, more of that stigma of, especially men, I think also have a harder time like accepting help and treatment. They feel like I should be able to do this on my own, but just mm-hmm. kind of calling attention to how long they've been using and the amount of success or oftentimes lack thereof that they've mm-hmm. had with trying to stay clean. Maybe you've gone to a three month program and you come out and you stay clean for one or two weeks and then you're using again and trying to help, you know, to help people see that the way the brain kind of changes over long-term use, it's really hard for it to adapt to kind of like the all or nothing approach Yeah, that this medication is, is really that it's a medication when taken appropriately, it's a, it's a helpful part of treatment. And mm-hmm. I talk about it as a support and a part of treatment. I think that that's part of it, but also just, again, helping people look realistically, like, you know, if you haven't had any success and yet you keep trying, maybe it's time to consider an alternative way of looking at it. So just helping people see yeah. their, again, different pathways they can go down that lead to the, the intended result of staying clean than, than yeah. sort of a medication is really. Now okay. do a lot of them say like, okay, I'll go on it, but I want to eventually get off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And that's fine. It's actually a medication like Suboxone was actually intended more for that to kind of be a shorter term treatment, maybe six months, a year, two years, but not necessarily long-term. Whereas when people think of methadone, they tend to think of that as more like you're making a lifelong. big- Lifelong. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it is a little bit easier to talk about something like Suboxone or Naltrexone and Vivitrol. That's the pill. And that can also be the monthly injection that helps both with alcohol and opiate use. Mm -hmm. Um, So that one's easier because it's not addictive at all. It's not an opiate itself. It's sometimes easier to help people see um, the benefit of that one. But yes, oftentimes people put enter into it. And I think that's fine. I think it's good to go into a treatment with a, I'm not committing my life to doing this, but for yeah. right now, let me try this for right now. And, and a lot of times my explanation is like, it takes a while. It takes about a year for a lot of people to make some of the social changes, the behavioral changes, mm-hmm. finding steady employment, a place to live. That's not around other people using drugs, maybe mm-hmm. um, repairing some relationships or cutting off relationships that are problematic. All those changes take time. And I think of the suboxone oftentimes as a support during those transition times. And when mm-hmm. some of the other things are in place, people are much more likely to be successful. And then yeah. that's a time to consider tapering off a medicine like Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. When they're not able to change certain things right then and there, that might be triggers for their use. Right. Exactly. And then, and then unfortunately for a lot of people, even as much as they intend to stay clean, if you go back to the same living environment and the same dealer is, <laughs> has your phone number and is calling you up and you know, you walk by the same places, that's, that's just so hard for someone who's really, yeah. you know, trying to stay clean, but but triggered by so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, similar to mental health, if they're in a, in an abusive relationship, it's going to be hard to feel better or have, you know, good self-esteem if they're still with that individual that's putting them down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly how that is. So mm-hmm. helping people see, you know, this gives you support during a time that you're trying to make those other important changes. And once those are in place, you are more likely to succeed and may not need yeah. to stay in a medicine like Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Now, have you seen differences between feed in terms of feedback among Latinx and non-Latinx individuals in terms of like, if you want to know, okay, how's their treatment going or are they more open or less open to letting you know if something's not working or if they're not happy or even positive feed, any type of feedback? I feel like the Latinx community is often very expressive and very vocal about, I would say about both things when they feel like things are going well, but certainly they never hesitate to tell me when they feel like things are not going well. So yeah, no, so I feel like generally there's a lot of, you know, willingness to share and express that they feel like something's really not working, not helping them. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit of an extreme view sometimes, but you know, you know, people, I, I don't think generally feel like they have a hard time letting me know if things are working for them or not working for yeah. them. They're ready for a change. Some, yes, I would say that because there's, I have a few clients who tend to minimize things and say, oh yeah, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind them like, you don't need to tell me just what you think I want to hear. Tell me if you're not mm-hmm. feeling better, I want to know that. But yeah. I would, I would say that maybe is like 5% of the time, I'd say 95% mm-hmm. of the time there's comfort in letting me know exactly, yeah. you know. Well, that's good. I mean, that means that they're comfortable with you and they feel like, okay, this is a safe person to tell the truth to. Right. Right. And some people, especially if I don't know them that well at first, will be a little more reluctant and will say, oh yeah, everything's fine. But you know, it's clear if you open a few more (laughs) conversations that things are not fine. So yeah. Yeah. I just, I just want to make sure that right. People feel comfortable being able to to share truthfully how they're feeling and doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Now, what type of guidance or like what's one piece of advice that you would provide to practitioners working with the Latinx community? What do you think those practitioners should know or be aware of or perhaps what type of training or yeah, like what feedback would you give or what advice? Yeah, I think I think just having 
if it's a new kind of experience for practitioners, I think if, if if that's not a community they've worked with before, I think it is important to have a little bit of some cultural training in the sense of knowing what the, you know, what the important values are. Again, like I, like I shared about understanding how important family is and how family dynamics work, both in the positive mm-hmm. and the negative. I think understanding the role of faith in this community is also really important because again, I, I, for a lot of people in a lot of other communities and settings, like faith is not something you really talk about, but I find that it's something that's very culturally part of people's backgrounds and something they're very comfortable with. And it it can be a real help and encouragement for people as they're in mental health treatment. A lot of times that like their faith and their faith community that they're connected to talking about prayer, or if they're trying to read something, reading reading books that are helpful in terms of their faith. Mm-hmm. It can also work the other way too. Sometimes I think some churches are kind of misinformed about mental health and kind of give a message that discourages people too sometimes from seeking mental health treatment because it's sort of like if there's something wrong with your heart or if you have diabetes, you definitely go see a doctor. But if you're feeling depressed or anxious, you just need to pray about that and not not seek health help. So I think I think yeah. it's to understand kind of the role of faith within the Latinx community and how that can both be a benefit, but also recognizing ways that you might have to help people overcome the stigma of what they've been told or heard or what's been shared in their in their faith community that may actually sometimes be a detriment to people seeking mm-hmm. mental health treatment or staying staying on their medications. A lot of times I'll start someone on a medicine mm-hmm. and you know a month later they'll say, oh yeah, they're fine, but it's clear the symptoms are kind of coming back and it takes a while to kind of draw out the fact that they shared with someone that they were on meds and that person discouraged them from being on meds and said, you know, other people often give their unsolicited opinion. Yeah. Or opinion. like, oh, I took that and it was terrible. I had a terrible, ex- or my cousin's aunt's uncle yeah. took that and had a really bad experience. So you shouldn't be on that or it's dangerous. Exactly. So yeah. sometimes the feedback, people may share what they're on and then find that they get all this unsolicited feedback. And then they kind of feel stuck in the middle of, well, mm-hmm. I know I, I know this medicine helps me, but I'm hearing from my friend, I shouldn't do that. And, and so that, right. There's, there's a, there's other factors that come into play that are important to, yeah. Kind of- yeah. Yeah. And has anything ever come up in terms of not hearing, maybe hearing voices or saying they, they're talking to someone that has passed or because of a religious or just their culture, but it wasn't psychosis. And maybe someone else had told them like, oh, we, I think you're schizophrenic or they might even believe that. But then through working with that person, you kind of realize this is part of their belief system. It's not psychosis, things like that. Yes. Yes. I would say for sure that comes up. And I think, right. Culturally, I think the idea of staying connected or communicating with people that they love that have died and maybe talking to them, you know, I try to encourage people that's not abnormal, you know, especially if it's someone who died recently, it's someone who lived with you. It's okay for you to talk like they're there and to feel like you're here. Them. And I think that allows people to still feel like a close connection, maybe, you know, through their dreams or times where they're awake, where they feel like they hear someone. Mm-hmm. But again, I, right. I try to help people see that I don't consider that psychosis. I consider that kind of how the mind deals with grief and mm-hmm. in a way of, of your mind, just also kind of trying to stay connected and maintain those conversations that you might've had out loud before. Now you may still talk to, or feel like you're hearing them. Mm-hmm. But I, I tell people that I think that's, that's an understandable and important way that the mind kind of tries to stay connected to some, to a loved one that they've lost. So yes, I, I, 
definitely comes up, but right. Sometimes, sometimes people are too quick to assume sometimes mental health treaters are too quick to assume that hearing voices means automatically that you have a psychotic disorder. So yes, I think, I feel like I have to do a lot of education about that and specifically about hearing voices, especially of a loved one who has died. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when people have had trauma too, I think they, they hear voices and sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Is it a voice mm-hmm. inside their head? Is it, you know, kind of a way that their mind has dealt with the trauma in the past that's different than psychosis, but yes, yeah. people have been given or been told that they're crazy. And therefore they automatically assume if you're crazy, you've got to have schizophrenia. Yeah. So yes, I, I definitely feel like that's an area where I feel like I do a lot of education about the difference mm-hmm. between kind of a normal process, especially when it's grief related. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes it very different than what actual psychosis is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Have you ever had, have you ever worked with an individual that maybe saw like a, a religious healer or like a healer in the community, kind of like a curadera? Um, and did they talk about their experience or oh, yes. anything of that sort? Yes, I definitely have had that. And again, understanding that that's, that's culturally something that's also very important and also is often a person of like considered of, uh, you know, wisdom and and mm-hmm. status within the community. So I, I don't, you know, I don't want to kind of have a, like a, give a, like a, oh, definitely don't listen to them or kind of any yeah. kind of dismissive. So I, I think it's important just to, to talk and find out and understand what kind of message they got from that person. Mm-hmm. And, and also then to kind of see, is that something that can be part of, you know, their, mm-hmm. their healing and their mental health treatment. If the person has kind of given them a message that's supposed supportive and can kind of build on, then I, I try to find ways to sort of integrate what I'm doing with medication or what they might be able to work on in therapy mm-hmm. with something that they've maybe heard from, from someone who's, you know, some sort of healer within their community. Because yeah. a lot of times you can, you can help kind of build those things together. They may seem like they're mm-hmm. different, but I try yeah. to help people see where that's whatever, you know, kind of message or conversation that they might've had with someone who is considered a more traditional healer. Mm-hmm. Um, we can kind of build on that and also, you know, work together. Yeah. It's, it's hard if that person has kind of told them, oh, you definitely don't need meds. You just need to take the, you know, this herbs mm-hmm. or this tea that I'll mix up for you. And I try to tell people that, that there can be a lot of, I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of natural treatments for things that are very valid. I don't mm-hmm. have a lot of knowledge of them, but I also see times where I, I, I tell people you can continue to take that and, and use whatever mm-hmm. traditional healing whether it's a supplement or a tea or something like that, that they find helpful yeah. in addition to a medication, because sometimes if people's symptoms are significant enough, I try to emphasize the fact that they might need a medication that I can prescribe in addition to what yeah. they've been offered to and see if they can continue on both of them. Mm-hmm. Of yeah, that's great. <laughs> Combining anything that might, whatever helps the client, that's what matters. Even if us personally, as a practitioner, we don't believe it, or we don't know a lot about it, we can at least say, okay, well, if you find it helpful, and it's positive, then let's, you know, the more the merrier, you know, the more people you have in your life that want to be there for you to help you um, improve whatever's going on, then that's fine. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And people often will take, want to take a lot of natural supplements too. And again, I just let them know, I'm not very well informed about a lot of the supplements, Mm -hmm. but most of them don't, um, I don't think many of them have any kind of harmful effects. Sometimes anything Mm -hmm. taken to an extreme. So sometimes taking a lot of something Mm -hmm. can, can have some negative effects on the body, but people unfortunately assume that if it's natural, then it can't be harmful in any amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's ways to just kind of, I think, make sure people say, you know, stay within the limits of what, what's recommended for that supplement mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. I let people know that that's, it, you can have both and you don't have to have mm-hmm. one or the other. Yeah. You don't have to choose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot that comes up that kind of, again, like, like you're saying too, if you can just kind of build in what people may already find supportive, then I think it gives you more credibility as someone who may be new to them. But if you can kind of help emphasize what's important about their background, what's been Mm -hmm. some of their strengths, you know, I feel like a lot of the Latinx community is very resilient. A lot of them have been through, have had like really difficult um, either childhoods or have had a lot of um, trauma or loss in their life but find a way to kind of use that and, and help them see how that actually strengthens them. A lot of times, you know, that can go a long way too. When you emphasize to people that people often don't necessarily see themselves as strong and resilient, Mm -hmm. but, but it it goes a long way. I think to sometimes just point out to people what they've been Mm -hmm. through and how they've overcome so much and just kind of on what, what the strengths are that you see within their character, Mm -hmm. even if some of it is, is getting through really difficult things that they've been through Mm -hmm. in their life. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people, because they're in a certain space where they see other people going through maybe similar things or quote unquote worse things, then they minimize what they've been through or they see it as normal. They say like, isn't this a normal part of childhood or doesn't everybody go through X, Y, Z? Because maybe they haven't been exposed to any different. So they might not even know like, oh, wait, this isn't quote unquote healthy or this isn't normal. Like not everybody goes through this as a child or in a relationship. Like I think a lot of times people will go through some sort of abuse in a relationship, maybe not physical, and they might not even know that that's not healthy or that's not not a good thing to be going through. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not always not a hundred percent of the time that it's women who are, you know, have more of a a relationship where they feel down and the man is more, yeah. the, but I do tend to see more like women who feel more downtrodden mm-hmm. and they, they're, they may be just like kind of put down or had negative comments. And like you said, may assume mm-hmm. that that's okay. And that's just kind of the norm of how, you know, a woman or a wife is treated. And yeah. so kind of speak to that. And I think just kind of continuing to point out that the thing, right. Certain things are not okay. And that's not healthy. Um, and they don't deserve to be treated that way or spoken to that way. Just continuing to kind yeah. of champion the, you know, people who see themselves more as downtrodden, but like you're saying, may accept it sort of as, as in this is the norm. And if they never saw their mom treated any differently, for example, or if they yeah. all their life have seen women with kind of that view of themselves, mm-hmm. it, it is a lot to overcome, but you can kind of help them with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rolfi, for coming on the podcast today. I think we had a really good conversation and I think it'll be really helpful for maybe practitioners that are new to working with the Latinx community or just want to know a little bit more, have some guidance and knowledge. So thanks for, for everything that you shared with us today. Sure. It was great. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you have the ability to join me on the rest of this journey. And please don't forget the references and all articles that were used to inform this episode can be found in the show notes wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you are experiencing an immediate crisis, please call 911. If you or a loved one are feeling suicidal, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The previous Lifeline number, 1-800-273-8255, is also available to people in emotional distress or a suicidal crisis. SAMHSA also has a free, confidential, 24-7 treatment referral and information service line in English and Spanish, and that number is 1-800-662-4357.